Hey, good morning. Hi. Uh, my name is Scott. I am the lead pastor here. Um, my privilege to be with you. Um, feeling a kind of uh, spiritual high coming off of the men's retreat. Um, thank you to those of you who are there. Um, there was just a really sweet spirit uh, over those couple of days together for us to, uh, what we leaned into was what it means to be people who uh, feel the responsibility and the call to, to share the gospel uh, with those around us. We are a church that our, our vision, our North Star, is to break barriers to encounter Jesus together. And of course, we play a role in that, um, that, that we might um, approach the barriers that exist around us relationally and in culture and all of that and introduce people to, to this one who alone can, can change our lives and change our eternal destinies. And so we talked about that. Uh, this is new for us. This is part of our strategic objectives this year as a church, kind of taking steps toward being equipped um, to, to be those who, who go out um, and share this amazing news of what Christ has done. And so um, as we kind of broke that new ground together, um, it was just cool to, to see men in this church uh, jump into that and engage around that and have conversations uh, in, in a gym or at a restaurant together just hanging out about what that could look like in our lives. Um, since most of us are not experts, most of us are not uh, necessarily crushing that. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was just a wonderful time to enter into sort of our shared sense of, um, of just weakness when it comes to that. And, um, and yeah, big shout out to, uh, to our self-proclaimed deacon of men, um, <laughs> Chris Rodonovich. Uh, Chris, Chris is a, uh, how I think of him is he's a tone setter. He sets a tone at these things um, of just being real, of being known, and, um, and I'm not faking it, but also a tone of, hey, but these things are of ultimate value and of ultimate seriousness. And Chris, I just love you for that. I, I love you for what you bring um, to those times. And so I don't mind giving Chris another round of applause. You work really hard. Um, yeah, it had been two whole years since we had done anything uh, like this, anything remotely like this. Um, and so thanks. Uh, I told him in when, like September or something, like, you got to find a place. We want to do this in like two months. Uh, we were a little late in planning it, and yet he pulled it off, and, and he did a wonderful job. Uh, and so, yeah, again, ladies, you have your retreat um, coming up in the spring, um, but you have that one dare uh, coming up as well. And so these are just really sweet times. Like, I'm excited for you uh, for, for that women's gathering. There's something about these new contexts that we're creating um, that just give a sense of like, okay, we're moving forward as a community in some way. And so, um, yeah, just felt like that was worth emphasizing. Just one other word about the fast. Um, fasting is an ancient practice that we do. We deny ourselves our most essential physical need of food in order to cry out and tell God that he, he's of much greater importance to us, urgency to us. Um, it's a way of kind of famishing our physical body in order to feed our spiritual selves. I will warn you that for many of you, this will be your first fast. It will not feel spiritually amazing. The point of fasting in so many ways is that sense of, ugh, like I go without this, this one physical need for one basically 24-hour period, and, and I begin to reveal, one writer says that fasting shows you what actually controls you, um, and you'll be amazed how your diet, how your appetite um, has so much say over just kind of where you're at in a given moment, in a given day. And so that's um, why we fast together. Um, if you have more questions on that, I feel like we've done this enough as a church that many of you, this has become like, okay, like this is a practice that I'm getting somewhat used to doing. Uh, but I do want to acknowledge for many of you, this will be the first time. Um, reach out to one of us, either on the discipleship team, one of the elders. If you have questions, grab us afterwards. Hey, what should I do? What kind of fast should I do? Normally we do a bunch of training around that beforehand, but we feel like we've gotten used, used to this enough as, as corporately um, that, that maybe we can just kind of send you into this. But if that is you, just don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to, to help you figure that out. Uh, we are in this series on the Ten Commandments today. We're on the Eighth Commandment, which uh, for you Bible trivia nerds, so many of you here, um, what is the Eighth Commandment? Anybody know it? Thou shalt not steal. That is what we are up to today. Um, this feels a little like a couple weeks ago when I preached Thou shalt not murder, where it's like, yeah, guys, don't steal, right? Like, we good? You know, like, who's, who's out here actively stealing, um, because most of the time, 
when we think of the act of stealing, we think of very direct kind of, I illegally take property that is not rightfully mine from you at great expense to you and in great you know, secrecy um, to the world. And certainly, um, I want to say that, that you shouldn't do that. That that's at least what thou shalt not steal means, okay? At the same time, though, if you think about the last couple weeks and the last couple of commandments, the, the analogy that both Jalen and I have used is that these commands, especially, especially these second five, they're sort of like the outer boundaries of what life in the community of the people of God is ideally meant to look like. They're the outer boundaries. The analogy that we used was, um, Jalen and I happen to both be basketball coaches, um, not together. It'd be fun to do that together someday. But, uh, but what we said was, you know, when, when you're starting out, and, and I coach little littles, and when you're starting out, they just need to know the, the boundaries, right? And so you say, these white lines are the boundaries. You, 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 can't, you can't go outside of those lines with the ball. And, and then the other thing that you can't do, right? Some of them are coming fresh off of football. Remember the guys who would come from football onto our basketball team? And it was always like, you got to remember, this is a different kind of sport. You can't just push people down. That's not the point. Like, you guard like this, not like this, right? And so, um, so you also can't push people. So those are the rules of basketball, but that's not the goal of basketball. The goal of basketball, you don't play basketball to not go out of bounds and to not push people down. The goal of basketball, take that ball, put it through the hoops more times than other people do. But those are the outer boundaries. That's a little like how these commandments, these thou shalt nots are functioning here, is thou shalt not steal is the outer boundary of how the people of God are to handle possessions as a community, how we're to handle, right? Today, we're going to talk about money. You probably heard it in what Dana read. And so similarly to the last two weeks, so thou shalt not murder was the outer boundaries of how God calls us to live uh, in relationship with one another. And we said God's vision for relationship in, in, in his world is much richer then just don't kill each other, right? In the same way, last week, Jalen said that, that when it comes to our sexuality, it's not just don't commit adultery. There's a much richer vision for how that powerful aspect of what it means to be human is to be handled among the people of God. Today is very similar in that what God is, is calling us to is he's saying, the handling of money, of finances, of possessions, of wealth is of massive importance. And there is a vision that God has for what it looks like for his people to handle those things that goes well beyond just don't steal from each other. And so that's what I want to outline for us today is what, what is thou shalt not steal? What is the grander vision that God has for wealth and possessions and money? in the entire story of the scriptures, such that we would understand that thou shalt not steal is merely the outer boundaries of it, not God's vision and purpose for these things. Now, I want to say at the outset that one of the most interesting things about money, and this is where, where it's so similar to, to sex and sexuality, is that I think like, because of the misquoting of a verse, like, um, the love of money is the root of all evil, probably if you've never been around church or the Bible or anything, you've probably heard that verse repeat. That's from the Bible, and that's not a misquote. But because of, I guess, a misunderstanding of that passage, we think money, according to God, is by definition bad. Maybe it's just a bad thing to be avoided, and the best thing that you can possibly do is just, just not deal with it. Whereas, where I want to start this whole thing is actually here. You can put up that first slide, Rachel. Is right at the beginning, and I know this is small, but right at the beginning, hopefully this is a text, especially if you've been around with us for a little bit, um, that you're familiar with. This is literally the, the first chapter of the Bible. This is God creating humanity. This is what it says. It says, then God said, let us make humanity, man, in our image after our likeness. And then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In the second chapter, when we kind of zoom in on this interaction between God and the creation of humanity, you have this. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to, to guard it. To work it is cultivation. To guard it is, is to make sure that, that negative things don't happen to it. It's to tend to it. It's to maintain it. So there's this cultivation and maintenance that's right there at the beginning of the creation of humanity. In other words, the idea that we are to possess certain things and then to make more of it is an inherently good thing given by God. Because what is money and wealth other than... Money and wealth is basically one and the same as how much of the world you have power over. Now, now that begins to get a little... Right? But it's true, right? How much money you have determines how much of the world you have power over. And so when you, as one pastor puts it, right, um, some of you woke up this morning and you had a lot of options of what you could wear today. Some of you had less. When you decide maybe later on today where you're going to go to eat, some of you have a lot of options for where you're going to eat. Some of you have less options of where you're going to eat, right? Given how much um, Right? Often finances and wealth come along with also the responsibility for other people. And so you may have a lot of people who report to you and who consider you someone that they're accountable to in the workplace. You may have no one that's accountable to you. But the idea that money gives you a certain amount of power over this world is not an inherently bad idea. It wasn't after the fall that the idea of hey, cultivate the world and make something of it came into the creational story. It was there before the fall. The concept here, and you see it there on the title of this slide, which, which I do think is big enough for you to read. The first principle that we have to wrap our minds around is the principle of stewardship. How many of you are familiar with that idea? Maybe you've heard that idea before. Like, show me your hands. Yeah, okay, fairly familiar idea, right? This is the biblical idea that God owns everything. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then it says a bunch of things about creation. Everything is God's. He is the ultimate owner. We are merely those who steward what's been entrusted to us. That's the relationship between an owner and a steward. An owner, it's theirs. A steward is overseeing it for the owner's sake, right? It's like whatever, an owner of a sports team versus the general manager of that sports team, right? The owner owns it. It's their team. General manager oversees it, makes decisions on behalf of that which is owned elsewhere. This is what we're seeing in this passage. Is God saying, I will entrust that which is mine to you and allow you to make decisions and oversee it and cultivate it and maintain it on my behalf. Therefore, there is a deep sense in which no one, hear me, no one truly, ultimately owns anything. It's all God's. That's the first thing that we have to wrap our minds around. That's also why the way we handle, it, it's fairly cliche. Um, if you've been around church for a while, you'll, you'll often hear when the topic of money comes up that this is the topic that Jesus talks about more than any other topic. Like if you, if you look thematically, um, in terms of ethically, right? He's talking about himself. The kingdom of God is probably the, the main topic. But in terms of ethically, right, we might think, oh, he talked a lot about relationships or sexuality or whatever, right? Like, no, he talks most about money. And here's, I think, why. This is a great writer on these things named Randy Alcorn. He says, there is a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. 
Our handling of money is a litmus test of our true character. It's an index of our spiritual life. Our stewardship of money and possessions becomes the story of our lives. God gave us responsibility over an aspect of this world. Now think of, right, if you know the Christian story, think of how this whole thing goes horribly wrong. How does it go horribly wrong? It goes horribly wrong because we decide, no, I want to run things how I want to run them. In other words, I'm the owner. Right? That's one way to, to understand what happens when humanity rebels against God, when humanity, you know, the Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they take the fruit, right? This is what happens in the fall, is that they say, no, we're not stewards, we're owners. Because to steward properly, think of this concept of stewardship. To be a good steward, the framework by which you make decisions about what's going to happen with that thing needs to be lockstep with your owner, okay? This is why a general manager of a sports team or of a company or whatever often gets fired when things don't go well because the owner says, you're no longer acting in my interest. You are acting as though this is your show to run. That's what we did. We said, we don't like to be stewards. We much prefer the posture of owner. Therefore, we're going to do this. The other thing that is so unique about money and why it's so quiet in here right now is because money so closely mirrors our relationship with God. Our relationship with money so closely mirrors our relationship with God because money is so godlike in certain ways. Right? Money guarantees us, so we think, security. If I have enough money, right? Like, who of us in this room wouldn't be like, yeah, I'd breathe a little bit easier tonight if you gave me 10% more of what I'm currently making or what I currently have? We would, all, we would all exhale. Like, oh, that just takes a little bit of the pressure off, right? Because money has this, has this sense of security to it. Money also has, has a sense of status, a sense of if I make a lot of money, well, that means that I'm someone in the world. That means that, 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 that I have meaning and purpose and you know, like this is why people move into New York City because, you know, you're a better person if, if you live in New York City. We all know that, um, right? Like this, this is why certain things are that way, right? I just saw a TikTok about that. Someone's like, I moved to New York City to say I live in New York City. And I was like, there's a little bit of truth in that. I have a lot of friends who live in New York City. Love them. Um, but right, like this is why we want to be around wealth. This is why we want to surround ourselves with people who are at a similar level to us because it gives us a certain sense of status, a certain sense of belonging gives us a certain sense of power and control over life. Now step back and say, where are we actually meant to draw those things from most deeply? Our security, our status, our sense of belonging, our sense of identity, who we are. Right? Where to draw those things from God? But money has this way of saying, well, I provide a lot of that stuff too. And I'm a little bit more tangible. Right? Like you can see me. You can open up your bank account and say, that's how secure I am. That's how much I'm worth in the world, literally, right? And so that mirroring of God and money has a really powerful way of, of moving us away from trust and identity and belonging in God and toward trust and identity in created things, which is the whole issue for humanity, is instead of entrusting ourselves to the creator, we entrust ourselves to created things. This is said again and again and again. Look at Romans 1 and 2. This is how Paul summarizes everything that's gone wrong in the human story. Is instead of honoring God as God, if I could be so bold, instead of honoring God as owner and being stewards, who say, yeah, God, how do you want me to interact with the stuff that you've entrusted to me? We say, no, we're owners, and this is the stuff that's actually going to give me meaning and purpose and significance and identity in the world. This is why um, one way that I would put this, you can go to the next side, is say the love of money is spiritually dangerous. The love of money is spiritually dangerous. Notice I'm not saying money is spiritually dangerous. I'm saying the love of money, the entrusting of our deepest self to our possessions and our finances, it's very spiritually dangerous. That's why you have Jesus saying things 
like this. This is Matthew. This is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, which we said the Sermon on the Mount is a kind of second telling in, in certain ways, not one-to-one, but it's a kind of second giving of the law. And so Jesus is referring a lot to the Ten Commandments and saying, hey, those were the outer boundaries. I'm giving you the richer vision of what these things are for. This is what he says about possessions there. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. Why? Because, because they're mutually exclusive in their godness. Like either money is your god, because what is a god? What is a god other than that which you worship, trust, and obey? Pretty good summary of what a god is, right? Now you might say, I don't believe in God. But there is something that you assign ultimate worth to in your life. Something that you trust to bring you happiness and meaning and significance. And something that you're pursuing. Something gets you up in the morning and gets you going and makes you say, that's my North Star to pursue. So whatever you assign ultimate worth to, right? What does your life say? What do your actions say? What do your anxieties at night say is of ultimate worth to you? What do you trust? What are you saying? If I just had that, if I had a little more of that, I would have a deeper sense that I'm okay. And then what do you obey? You say, what, what do you mean? How, how could I obey money? Well, there's a certain set of rules in this world of how you get more money. And some of you are breaking your backs in order to try and obey those rules such that you get what you've been guaranteed if those rules are obeyed. You're obeying that God. And what God is saying, again, is not money's bad, He's saying the love of it, because here's what's going to happen. At some point, your worship of God and your worship of money, they're going to collide. At some point, your trust of money and your trust in God, they're going to collide. And particularly at some point, you obeying the rules of more money and you obeying the rules that we're about to see that God sets out for these things, oh, they're going to collide. And so Jesus is saying, you can't have it both ways. can't have one foot in that set of rules and one foot in this set of rules. You'll be a disintegrated person at least, if not completely compelled to just say, well, I'm just going to step over into my worship of money. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. He's talking to a young protege of his. He says, but those who desire to be rich, this is what I like, those who desire to be rich, again, We don't have outright condemnations in the scriptures, even of wealthy people. There are wealthy people who are incredibly faithful. Think of Abraham, think of Lydia in the New Testament. Like you have plenty of examples of people who had enormous wealth who aren't called out. So the, the desire to be rich is what's being talked about here, which the desire to be rich can be the driving force of your life, whether you're at the top of the economic bracket or whether you're at the bottom of the economic. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Yo. And now here's your verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, what a word, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs hear what he's saying here? He's saying the desire to be rich, the desire to to find wealth and meaning, significance, and all that stuff, and what we have, and then obeying it and pursuing it with everything we've got. He says it's like a gateway drug. You know that concept, right? He says it leads you into all kinds of other stuff. You let that be your North Star, you'll find yourself compromising in all kinds of ways. You'll find yourself shedding your Christian identity more and more in order to to get closer and closer to that. And then the image he gives is he says, it's like someone stumbling around in a dark room and there's sharp objects everywhere. 
He's saying it ends up in a spiritually bloody scene. Very provocative, what he's saying here. And he's saying this to a young man who's a pastor, Timothy, who shows up in the Bible. He says, you still got to watch out for this. He said, just because you're like a super Christian doesn't mean that this can't fall into your life. Ecclesiastes, one of the wisdom books in the, in the Old Testament, says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, meaninglessness. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, at some point, you just can't consume everything that you're buying. Okay, you can look at it, but like, you're just, that's all you got. That's the only joy that you can enjoy, or that's the only joy that you can derive from it. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, though, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Isn't that wild? Here's what I think that this is getting at. I used to call this with students this. The lie of just a little bit more. The lie of a little bit more. This is, again, one of the things that money has a unique way of doing to us in our hearts. Listen to Archbishop Tim Keller. That's now a thing in our church, I guess. Um, this is about the best thing that, that I've ever read on, on this concept. Go to that next slide, Rachel. The counterfeit God of money uses powerful sociological and, and psych, psychological, there we go, dynamics. Everyone tends to live in a particular socioeconomic bracket. Once you're able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools, and participate in its social life, you will find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. And you don't compare yourself to the rest of the world, you compare yourself to those in your bracket. The human heart always wants to justify itself, and this is one of the easiest ways. You say, well, I don't live as well as him or her or them. My means are modest compared to theirs. You bothered yet? That's just half the quote. <laughs> You can reason and think that no matter how lavishly you are living, as a result, oh, you can think that no matter how lavishly you're living. As a result, most Americans think of themselves as middle class and only 2% call themselves upper class. Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it is not a problem for them. So how we do communion here? No. Um, <laughs> Keller is a pastor in New York City, and so he's around a lot of very successful, very, very wealthy people. And he says... Um, I've had people come into my office with all kinds of besetting sins. He said, I've literally never had a single person walk in and say, I'm struggling with greed. I just can't get past this ceaseless need to believe that I need just a little bit more. He said, it's, it's because of this. Because we are so able to look to our right and to our left and say, eh, they're more lavish, eh, they're not as responsible, they don't give as much as we do. Very powerful thing that this does. And yet we have all of this evidence, historically, that it's, it's not a little bit more. It doesn't do it. It doesn't do it, right? Um, I think it was, yeah, it was John D. Rockefeller who once said, Rockefeller, right? Like, that's how we make fun of each other. Like, okay, Rockefeller, right? Like, one of the wealthiest people ever in the history of the world, um, when he was asked how much is enough, you know what he said? A little bit more, a little bit more. Vanderbilt, like Vanderbilt University, Vanderbilt, said the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. And yet our hearts go, let me try. <laughs> I'll give it a whirl. Uh, Henry Ford once said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie once said, I've noticed that millionaires seldom smile. And Rockefeller again said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. These are prophets. 
a different religion, of a different God, who have obeyed perfectly that God. Followed all the rules, who have worshipped, assigned it ultimate worth, who have trusted in it for their deepest identity, and they get to the end of the path. They ascend the mountain of that religion, and they shout back down to us in the words of our pastoral resident, that ain't it, fam. This ain't it. It's not up here. You're not going to find it. I'm up here. I'm telling you. I've ascended the mountain. And that worth, that joy, that meaning, it's not here. So what do we do, right? <laughs> Despair. That's what you do. No, what do you do, right? I think it's interesting that there's this, there's this through line in the scriptures, right? Like what we're actually talking about is thou shalt not steal. And there's this through line in the scriptures that's really interesting that defines what the opposite of stealing is. And the opposite of stealing is not not stealing. It's this. Listen to this. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Malachi 3.8 says, Will you rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And his answer is, in your tithes and contributions. In other words, in your giving. In your lack of generosity, you are robbing God. Very similarly in Ephesians 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. One more from that, from that same, um, what we read before, the, Paul writing to Timothy. He says, as for the rich, because he knows that in Timothy's church, there's going to be wealthy people among them. He says, so what, what do you do? Do you give it all away, right? Like Jesus said that at one point. We'll actually look at that story. Jesus said that at one point. Maybe the answer is always you just give it all away. You don't mess with it. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Keller says, one of the craziest things about money is if you're good at making money, you think that you're good at everything. And he said, you get around wealthy people and there's this assumption of expertise in areas that have nothing to do with them pushing numbers around financially. Paul said it before Keller. Like, wow. Um, right? Like, don't be haughty, nor set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, hello, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The opposite of stealing is radical generosity. It's living with open hands. It's saying, what would it look like for me by the end of my life to not so much be economically wealthy, but to look back and be wealthy in all the good that I've done? Because here is what all of this points to. It says money, much like many other created things, is ultimately at least neutral, if not inherently good. And yet what the idolatrous human heart does the heart that loves to find worship and meaning and significance in everything but God, what the idolatrous heart does is it enthrones it as God. And then we become, this is the whole concept in the scriptures, is we become what we worship. We become like it, right? The whole Christian life is becoming more and more like Christ. This is what Paul talks about. He says, when you assign Christ's ultimate worth, you're going to become a lot like him in that pursuit. When you assign money ultimate worth, you're going to become a lot like money. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, it says anything but God, these, these created things, what it means to become like them is you stop hearing. Money can't hear. Money can't do anything for you. You stop seeing properly. You get blinded. And there's even a spiritual deadness that takes you over because your heart is calloused. Because you're no longer worshiping a living, breathing thing that can actually provide what you think that it will. 
Instead, you're worshiping something that is going to make you deaf to the word of God. It's going to make you blind to the needs of others. And it's going to callous your heart. You're going to go from someone who is meant to live, who finds meaning and purpose and ultimate joy in living for the good of others, and it's going to callous and it's going to become only about you. This is what's so insidious about the worship of anything but God, is you will become like it. And if it is merely a created thing, you will become more like a created thing in this broken creation. But if you enthrone God as God and worship him and obey him, because here's what this is saying. It's saying, yeah, you've been entrusted with wealth. The idea isn't always just give it all away and run away from that responsibility. The same way that when it comes to Whatever it is, right? Sex and sexuality, when it comes to the relationships that God has given you, because there's danger there, it doesn't mean you run away. It doesn't mean you say, therefore, our, no, it's been given to you by God. You're a steward. You got to listen to how he says. Now, for some of you, right, in very specific cases, Jesus says the only answer for you is you got to give it all away. That's the only way you're getting through this. But I think what's normal, and, and even what Paul's words here are getting at is, no, it's a good thing that God has entrusted this to you. You got to step back and say, God, why, why have you given me this job, this income, these possessions? Why have you given me this house and this car? And what would it look like for me to leverage this, to be a good steward of the owner? Because it's his, not mine. What would it look like for me to steward this in a way that's actually in line with his heart? Because when, when my heart and intentions, when my grid of decision-making of how I handle these things is in line with his, God begins to say things like, enter the joy of your master. Participate with me in the joy that you'll receive when you actually live generously toward other people. Enter the joy of becoming like me. Because you know what God did? Owner of all things? I'll tell you what he did. Think of, think of Philippians 2, right? We just did this, this big series through the book of Philippians. We said the heart of that book is right there in the center. It's, it's the beating heart of the book. I did this like 6,000 times in that series because everything flows from that beating heart. And what are we told in Philippians 2? This isn't in the slide. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mindset, this posture among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. One way to translate that is a thing to be stolen for his own benefit. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a steward, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him infinite wealth, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God. This is your owner. This is the owner of all things. And he finds his deepest joy and meaning and significance not in stealing that which is rightfully his. And it was rightfully his, right? This is the difference between us and Christ. He was not a steward. He was an owner. He was God himself. And yet he chose willingly to say, I give it all away. I give away all my rights and riches and privileges of being God in order to love and serve and to come near. It's only when we realize that that's been done first for us, that infinite wealth has been set aside in order for our good to be pursued, that we can begin to see the joy and beauty and glory of generosity. Because this, this, right, what, what you heard Dana read, what you heard Dana read. Well, this is actually on the slides. 
Here's how that passage, and I won't go through the whole passage, but here's how that passage ends. Goes, go to the next slide, Rachel. So <laughs> this is Paul writing to a community, and he's encouraging them to be generous. What I love is right in the middle of it, this, this kind of like is halfway through what, what Dana read, is uh, he says, I say this not as a command. This is one of the really interesting things about the New Testament's vision for generosity and giving, is the question always comes down to like, oh, how much? Like, what's generosity? What does that look like? And Paul's like, I'm not giving you a command. I'm not giving you a number. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. What I love is he says, like, guys, at some point, generosity doesn't come down to, like, I'd love to be generous. He's like, you said that a year ago. Like, you got to complete that by actually watching the money leave your possession and go to the good of others. He's saying, but this will benefit you. Because what are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments we have said from, from Jump, they are rules for the liberated life. They are defining for us what true freedom looks like. And Paul says you're grasping on to this stuff. Your intention to be generous without the action of generosity, it's keeping you from stepping into the rhythm of the gospel itself. Because the rhythm of the gospel is Riches laid aside, poverty embraced, such that others might go free. He says, that's the rhythm of the gospel. And you're the beneficiary of that. You have everything you need. Money can't give you what only God can give you. Is having a little bit of money nice? Amen, hallelujah, right? Like, this is why the church is called to give Generously. This is why we have a diaconate fund. This is why if you're sitting here today struggling financially, know that we as a church are committed to what Paul says later in this passage. He says, look, the people of God, there's to be a kind of equality, not exact equality, but a kind of fairness, a kind of like there shouldn't be people with so much in your community and then people who can't even make ends meet. He says, so be generous. We set up structures for that as a church for centuries now in order to do this well. All of that said, Money cannot give for any of us, whether you have a lot or a little, it cannot give you that deepest sense of security. It cannot give you a sense that you're okay in the world, that you mean something, that you belong. It cannot give you a life of actually deep purpose and satisfaction and joy. Paul is saying, but take what Jesus said seriously. It's one or the other. You gotta open your hands at some point and actually take the risk because generosity is nothing if not a bold, courageous move to say, because generosity doesn't make sense. Yeah, you get tax write-offs and all that stuff, but most of us aren't sophisticated enough to understand what the heck is going on with that, right? Like, but genero like, like everyday generosity, right? The generosity that I know is going on in our church. By the way, the reason why I don't come up here and just, we are, I think, a fairly generous community. And particularly some of you lead us in this really beautifully. You live with open hands. You know neighbors and friends and people in your community, and you go, yeah, we're going to help them because that's what we're about. That takes a kind of boldness and courage because it doesn't make rational sense, right? Like a lot of the objection to a lot of this is like, yeah, but what if the person doesn't use it well and all those questions? It's like, what if that was God's approach to us? I'll become poor, I'll die for them, but they better act like they, they appreciate it. Come on right? Like, that's not good news. That's quid pro quo. That ain't God. That's not the gospel. But when we step into that and we say, I'm just going to give by faith, because I believe that this is what God-likeness in the world, what Christ-likeness looks like. You know the story of the rich young ruler? So the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we're not sure exactly what question he thinks he's asking. But Jesus is like, cool, cool. Um, you, have you obeyed all the Ten Commandments? He's like, yeah, I'm good. I obeyed all the Ten Commandments, which is like, yo. Um, right? You're like, I don't know, bro. Um, but the reason why he's called the rich young ruler is there's something about him where clearly he presents wealth. Right? And I think Jesus reads this pretty quickly. 
right? Like, he's not just the, the young guy. He's the rich young ruler. Um, and so there's probably something about him that he's presenting like, yeah, all y'all are going to know. And probably even him stepping out and having the boldness to ask Jesus this question is a little bit of that haughtiness that Paul is warning against. He's like, everybody, I have a question. And then he shows off his morality. He's like, I've obeyed everything. And then Jesus says, you know what he says? He says this. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. One thing you lack. What's the one thing he lacks? Yeah, it's kind of it's, it's kind of an interesting, if you look at it literally, you're like, one thing you lack, sell all you have, distribute to the poor, treasure in heaven, come and follow me. That feels like four things to me, right? Or one thing you lack, give it all away, is like an interesting, you would think it would say, one thing you have to do is this, and then you'll be good. He says, one thing you lack, and I will never forget, as long as I live, John Piper might be a name that some of you know. He's, he's a great pastor. He's retired now. Piper had this great line about this story. He says, oh, I think it's up there. Yeah, it's on the next slide. He says, the one thing the rich young ruler needs is not what falls out of his hands, but what he takes into his hands. In other words, Jesus is reaching out to this guy, and he's saying, what we all need, what this man ultimately needs, we need Christ. We need Jesus. And Jesus is reaching towards this guy, pursuing this guy in love. And he says, all you need is me. And the guy goes, okay, cool. Um, uh, I'll, I'll grab onto you. And Jesus is like, yeah, one thing you lack. Gotta let that go. And this has gone so deep into the heart of this man. It is so close to his identity. I think it's, it's, it's that case where he says, the only way to do this is you got to let it all go. you got to let it all go. But ultimately, what we need to do is to figure out and to say, what is it that I'm grasping on so tightly? And today, where the invitation is, what is it about wealth and money and, and my attitude towards it that I'm holding on to so tightly that Jesus might be reaching out his hands and saying, true, true freedom is with me. But you're going to have to let that go. Because you lack one thing, and it's me. And if you would just grab on, you would find that I'm sufficient. Because here's the beautiful thing. Is the lie of a little bit more when it comes to wealth becomes the complete, unending, never-ceasing joy of a little bit more of God. Do you know it's not a lie in your heart to say, if I had a little bit more of God, I think I'd be more secure. If I had a little bit more of God, I think I'd sense that, that I'm okay, that I belong, that I truly am forgiven. If I had a little bit more of God, maybe, maybe the shame that I feel, that I'm not who I should be, that I've messed it up, that there's so much behind me that I've done wrong that I could never be acceptable to. Maybe all that would go away if I had a little bit more of God. Maybe I'd have the right North Star and I would have someone to obey who actually has my best interest, a, a living, breathing, a truly powerful, truly loving God. Because what generosity is, is ultimately a move to say, a little bit more God, a little bit more God. Let me say this. This has been perverted in the American church. Say a little bit more of your money, you get a little bit more God. That ain't what I'm saying. This goes much deeper than some health, wealth, quid pro quo nonsense. We don't have a quid pro quo God. You ain't gonna sow your seed here and get 10,000 fold back. I'm sorry. It's not how it works. But if you get God, you got plenty. You got more than what more, more wealth could have given you. Right? I invite you to say, where am I believing the lie of a little bit more? Where might I embrace the call to say, man, if generosity is a little bit more of God and that's unending, unceasing, it's a good pursuit. Instead of being an exhausting pursuit of the life, a little bit more, it becomes each step toward God is a little bit more fulfillment, a little bit of a deeper well in me to receive a little bit more of him. I'll end with this because it's a question that hangs over all of this, is how much, 
I can't do better than C.S. Lewis most of the time, but especially here. I just love this. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusement, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it's too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. So here's why. The reason why I'm not generous, the reason why you're not generous is because we say, yeah, but if I give this away, I can't do what I want to do. And your burden, I got to take it on. And Jesus says, exactly, exactly. When your burden becomes my burden, I am stepping into courageous, bold, yet life-giving, joyful Christ-likeness. Because what did Jesus do other than say, your whole burden, your whole debt, it's mine. I'll take it completely on me. I will inconvenience myself to the depth of death on a cross itself in order that you might have the hope of a changed heart that can let go and be truly free in this world. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, um, these are sobering things, God. Um, these are difficult things to believe and live out. But Lord, I pray that you would show us what, how this shows up in each of our stories, God, um, and what it might look like even today for us to take a step toward you, toward a little bit more of God, so God, reveal in our hearts where we're believing this lie, this ceaseless, endless lie, that a little bit more of this or that would be where true satisfaction is found. And let us instead direct our sight on you, the only one who can truly provide those things. God, thank you for this table where repentance and grace is available to us. God, as we come now, I pray that you would um, both bring conviction to us, but also that sweet sense that we are, at the end of the day, a forgiven people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.